I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Tiller Giorno, the resident money in politics reporter for Open Secrets, joins us to discuss the recent accusations made by the Campaign Legal Center in a complaint filed to the Federal Election Committee concerning Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis and campaign finance violations. We'll also end up discussing issues such as dark money. We'll also end up discussing other issues such as the latest developments in the NSO group slash Pegasus spyware story, the issue of dark money, and Taylor's work on foreign influence lobbying. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. With all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Tiller Giorno. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with again, Tiller Giorno, who writes for Open Secrets. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm so excited to be back. Thanks for having me, JG. So, Taylor, if you could, uh, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about uh, Open Secrets, and then we'll get into uh, the work you're doing there, uh, specifically on Ron DeSantis and campaign uh, finance issues. Oh, yeah. I'm excited to dig into campaign finance with you. Um, a little bit on Open Secrets. Open Secrets is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that tracks the influence of money on U.S. politics, elections, and public policy. So it's an amazing resource as a site in itself. You can go type in your representative, your senator, see who their top contributors are, see how much lobbyists are giving to members of Congress, see lobbyists that have stepped through the revolving door to go work for various sectors. It's a it's a massively uh, helpful resource for the public. I work as the money and politics reporter at Open Secrets, which is a fantastic job. My entire job is just to dig into our database and see how it relates to what's happening in the news um, and how we can sort of shed light on seemingly opaque decisions uh, at the federal and the state level um, and basically write about it for Open Secrets News. So you recently have two articles out on Open Secrets uh, about Ron DeSantis and his super PAC. Uh, it's a complicated story. So maybe you could give uh, sort of a rundown of what is going on with Ron DeSantis and the legality of what he's doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the place to start is both of the articles that I wrote came out after Ron DeSantis kicked off his very highly anticipated presidential campaign last Wednesday. You probably got the push notifications that there was a, a glitchy discussion with Twitter CEO Elon Musk, moderated by this tech entrepreneur, David Sachs. And basically, um, basically, he said, I'm officially announcing my presidential run. But a lot of people have known that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is going was going to run for president even before the end of the 2022 election. So we at Open Secrets, we track money going to all candidates, but we really started paying attention to the money flowing into Ron DeSantis's state level pack last summer when we noticed that he was on track to just absolutely smash the gubernatorial fundraising record. So basically, the person that held it before was this woman named Meg Whitman. She's now the ambassador to Kenya. She used to be like the Hewlett Packard eBay CEO. Um, she self-financed like $170 million of her campaign. She held the record. And in September, DeSantis smashed that record without any self-financing. So he had raised $170 million at that point. And by the end of the 2022 election cycle, he raised $211 million, which is bonkers for a relatively uncontested gubernatorial race. And over $173 million of that $211 million total went into his state-level pack. And his state-level pack under Florida campaign finance laws, you can raise and spend money without limits. It's approximately uh, equivalent to the federal campaign finance rules that a super PAC would be subject to at the federal level. Um, but it was money that could be used for his campaign. The reason that everybody is looking at Ron DeSantis's old state level PAC and the context of his presidential run is because his a super PAC supporting him and his old state level PAC pulled a legally questionable move in the sense that basically Ron DeSantis continued raising money in this state level pack even after he won, even though he can't run for governor again in 2026 because of Florida term limits. So he's continuing to rake in millions of dollars to the state level pack as everybody knows that he's planning a presidential run. Basically, he's pushing the ball further um, to get around some federal campaign finance restrictions that would make it uh, impossible for him to do to basically raise money for a super PAC. So um, right the day of his announcement, the super PAC, the federal super PAC never backed down, announced that $80 million of its $200 million budget was going to be coming from DeSantis's old state level PAC. And you may be wondering, oh my gosh, how can he do this? I say it's DeSantis's old state level PAC because even though he's been raising money through it, um, he reportedly was telling donors in March that he was planning to run for president, continuing to rake in millions to the state level pack. He transferred control of that state level pack to one of his allies in the Florida legislature, State Senator Blaze Ignolia, which is a very Florida name. Um, and so Senator Ignolia controls that state level pack now. He's also helped DeSantis push a lot of legislative priorities through the Florida legislature. And now he is part of the apparatus that's pushing the $80 million that was left over in the state level pack to the federal super PAC that's supporting DeSantis. Um, and one campaign finance watchdog cried foul on this. They said, hey, DeSantis, you're violating the soft money provision by effectively raising money when you knew you were telling people you're going to run for president. You're raising money outside of the bounds of federal campaign finance law. And we don't think you should be allowed to transfer to basically transfer that money to an ally who then will transfer it to a federal super PAC. So real we can quick, get definitely a lot more in the weeds, but that's the the broad overview. So so real quick, the the watchdog group that we're talking about is the Campaign Legal Center, right? Yes. Yep. Okay, and they're the so one Campaign that, Legal Center. Go on. Yeah, they're the ones who filed the complaint with the Federal Election Commission. For your listeners, Campaign Legal Center is a nonprofit organization that basically is a campaign finance watchdog. They also take a look at all the FEC 
filings. Their staff is full of former members of the Federal Election Commission, their Office of General Counsel. And basically, they are watchdogs because money in politics has exploded since 2010. And there are lots of legal loopholes to expand, basically, the use of campaign finance. And that's something that Ron DeSantis is doing now. He's accused of pushing the envelope on these soft money provisions. So campaign finance, campaign legal center filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission asking them to investigate and potentially fine Ron DeSantis. I don't think that they're going to do it for reasons that we get into. Uh, we can get into, but that's the state of play right now. I do want to get into that real quick because I, I, I don't want listeners to get lost. The name of the super PAC okay. is never back down, right? Yes. The name of the the name of the super PAC that's going to be supporting Ron DeSantis is never back down. So when you see ads running on television at the end, it always says paid for by. If you see paid for by never back down, it's going to be this super PAC that's actually founded and run by former Virginia uh, AG Ken Cuccinelli. There's a lot of intersecting relationships in this in this political apparatus. So. Okay, so you said you don't think the Federal Election Commission is necessarily going to go forward with uh, dealing with this complaint. Why do you say that? Well, I I could be wrong, but there was a similar case that was brought to the Federal Election Commission at, after the 2020 election. Basically, uh, Representative Byron Donalds, we know him from... The speaker battle, he was the alternative to Kevin McCarthy. Before he was a, a congressional representative, he was a Florida representative. He had also an old state level pack. And that old state level pack had a few hundred thousand dollars left in it when he decided he wanted to run for the House. So about five months after Byron Donald's cuts ties with this super this old state level pack, the person that's the old state level pack can transferred about $100,000 to a federal super PAC that spent money supporting Representative Donalds in his in his House bid. He's clearly won that election. He's in the House now. But when a complaint was made to the Federal Election Commission, basically the three Republican commissioners said, we declined to investigate this case. There's not sufficient evidence to prove that Byron Donalds was in a position to authorize or give the green light on this transfer happening. So we don't think this is worth pursuing. There are some key differences in, in the cases. So, for example, Representative Donalds was had cut ties with the entity for five months before that transfer was made. Also, he mm, he had not been actively raising money when it was known that he was going to be running for the House, was my impression. And that was something that was brought up by the commissioners. Those are big differences from DeSantis's case, where basically um, he's he was reportedly in March, like I said, raising money to run for president. It's been known for a while. It's been bandied about, oh, maybe he'll transfer it from the state level pack to the federal pack. So there are some differences that could, could sway commissioners to prompt an investigation. But... They are a uh, bit. Uh, they are typically averse to overregulating the people that are working in this space. So, so one thing I wanted to get into because I I know a lot of people that have become very, uh, shall we say, jaded about our political space in the U.S. and politicians and money in politics and. People will say to me things like, well, doesn't everyone do this kind of thing? Don't all the politicians do this? And I, I'm just curious, how do you respond when people give that sort of jaded response? And um, how should we look at this DeSantis case? How unprecedented is it? Yeah, I mean, it's totally understandable that people are jaded. Since the 2010 decision in Citizens United, um, which was basically the Supreme Court case that paved the way for all of this money to be flowing into super PACs, the amount of money in politics is has absolutely exploded. And there's technically, legally a guardrail that says, hey, super PACs that are able to raise and spend money in unlimited amounts, 
they can't collaborate with the candidates that they're supporting. Um, but there have been cases that have raised scrutiny. And basically, it's just opened the door to a lot more special interests flowing into money into flowing into politics. Um, but basically, if, if you get jaded, you give away your autonomy, your vote still counts for 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 something in this democracy, um, as does your voice, whether you're a constituent or you work for uh, or you're you have a representative that works for you. Um, this is a, a really big issue. And uh, as you can tell, it's easy to get lost in the weeds in this. Um, so that's why I'm really glad that you're having me on, JG, to to try to to demystify it a little bit. Um, what was the second part of your question, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, how unprecedented is this DeSantis? Right, right. Um, well, okay. So like I said, this is something that is relatively unprecedented. That earlier Byron Donald's example that I mentioned, that was $100,000. This is $80 million. Um, however, uh, it's very interesting. Actually, uh, his, his primary, uh, competition in this Republican presidential primary is former President Donald Trump. I can't believe we've gotten 20 minutes into this conversation without bringing up Trump. But Trump's old leadership pack actually pulled a very, very similar stunt um, right before he announced. So President Trump announces his presidential run about a week after the 2022 elections wrap up. He is ready. He's raring to go. And it comes out later basically because there are federal election commission reporting deadlines things that i won't get into that his leadership pack save america that basically was raising money um for his campaign and also to cover his legal fees they transferred 60 million dollars to a federal super pack maga inc that is supporting trump in the 2024 presidential election one week before trump announced so that's crazy, too, because, you know, Trump is still also technically affiliated with his leadership pack. So both of them are really pushing the bounds of campaign finance laws. Um, and part of the reason that this is so part of what makes this also very opaque and hard to understand is one of the primary vehicles that people that want less regulation of campaign finance use is through the court system. So we've seen people be concerned with the overturning of abortion rights at the federal level, the erosion of um, environmental protections at the at the Supreme Court level. Money in politics is also something that is being decided at the Supreme Court level. So even if people bring these cases, there is a chance that they will make their way up to a Supreme Court that has a uh, 6-3 majority conservative and they are have voted in the past on uh, to side with cases basically that will further erode campaign finance. So these are unprecedented moves. Roger Sollenberger in the Daily Beast actually has a really awesome article uh, out where basically he talks about some more of the specifics as to why this is eroding campaign finance and why some of these moves are very unprecedented. Um but they, they really are. They really are. And we are entering a very interesting age where basically I've had people privately at the FEC say, you know, contributions are, are hanging on by a thread. Um, so a lot of these unprecedented moves, I think, will have ripple effects for election cycles to come. Could you talk about the importance of, uh, you know, having these type of regulations, um, you know, going after campaign finance violations and I guess what are what are the arguments uh, that are given to sort of deregulate or go softer on these things? And why do you think maybe those arguments are, are wrong? Yeah, I couldn't probably weigh in on why the arguments are, are wrong as a reporter. But some of the things that I hear from basically people that advocate for less regulation in the campaign finance space is at the end of the day, money in politics is an issue of freedom of speech. That's a big reason why the 2010 Supreme Court case in Citizens United went the way that it did is because the Supreme Court justices said, yes, money in this context, as long as it's not being used to basically get around contribution limits, we can't be limiting people's freedom of speech. And in this case, corporations also count 
as uh, having a free voice in the Citizens United case. So basically, that's the legal theory that it stands on. Where people push back on that is when we say, hey, as you've deregulated, all of this money has flowed into politics, both directly, you can you can directly trace, oh, hey, the oil industry is giving this much money to Senator Manchin, or the crypto industry is giving this much money to Senator Cinema. You can track those direct relationships, um, you can trace the money, but even it's opened the door for that in subsequent cases, a lot of dark money to be pouring into our elections. And that dark money is a very sexy buzzword term that basically means the money trail stops cold because it's either registered to a 501c4 nonprofit that's not required to disclose its donors, or it's regular registered to an LLC, which is typically a shell company. So I've done reporting during the 2022 midterms on pop-up super PACs, which are super PACs that can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money. They pop up at a very specific time in the election cycle where they're not going to be required to disclose their donors until after the election, spend millions of dollars trying to sway voters for their preferred candidate or against the candidate that they don't like. And then they disclose after who's paying for it. That keeps voters in the dark about who's trying to sway their elections. But in some cases, um, like the New Hampshire Senate primary, uh, for example, you'll see the disclosure after and it stops with a dark money group that's registered to a P.O. box. Really, there's not a lot of avenues to find out who's behind the dark money group, although I am really lucky to work with this amazing investigative reporter, Anna Masolia. I highly recommend people check out her work. She's sort of the dark money sleuth. Basically, <laughs> to go back to your original question, sum it up. People that advocate for deregulation of campaign finance say, hey, this is an issue of freedom of speech. Everyone has the right to participate in our democracy. But people who people who watch the influence of money in, in U.S. politics and say, re say regulation is really necessary to rein in the influence of corporate interests. You and I probably can't give a million dollars to a party committee or a super PAC, um, but also that basically regulations make it so that, like I said earlier, you are a voter, you have a vote. Um, you should know where that money that's being spent trying to influence you comes from. So then we've been talking mainly about, you know, DeSantis and, you know, some other cases involving Republicans. I, I don't want to treat this as like a um, I don't want to be accused of politicizing this. So, I, I mean, does this also are there, are there also issues with uh, the Democratic Party and uh, campaign finance violation or not? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I think one of the things you learn reporting on money in politics, writing about money in politics, is that money doesn't just influence one party in their their political policy making. It's not something that just one party of policy like policymaker gets dinged for. Like the two examples I mentioned earlier, uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, they're they're two people that everybody loves to focus on for their spe the special interests that give to their campaigns and some of the policies that come out of it. But even uh, on a broader complaint level, uh, so I mentioned dark money. Dark money used to very much be a tool for the Republican political apparatus. Um, and they're still big dark money spenders. One Nation is linked, is a dark money group that basically is linked to uh, the Republican Senate leadership. Uh, the Democrats have their own, uh, their own basically Senate majority dark money group. And in the 2020 election, for the very first time, Democrats spent more dark money than Republicans on elections. And we're actually going to be about to release a, port, a report that gives us a, a scope and an overview of the dark money that's spent in 2022 midterm elections. I can't say much about that because it's about to come out. But basically, Democrats continue to spend in the same amounts, if not more, dark money than Republicans. And that's not to say that there aren't people in Congress that are trying to advocate for transparency into dark money. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is probably the biggest example of people that are trying to pass legislation to make it a lot harder for these dark money groups to spend money in as large 
of a way as they currently are. Uh, he's passed the Disclose Act every year since, or he's introduced the Disclose Act every year since 2013, which among other things would require groups that spend more than $10,000 or contribute it to a political campaign, a dark money group specifically, to disclose who gave them that money. It has not gained traction. It's failed every single year. But last year, for the first time, uh, every Democrat, Democratic senator was on board with voting for it, even as Democrats spent the most money. Uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, this is the last thing I'll say. I'm sorry, I could nerd about campaign finance for hours. But Sheldon Whitehouse wrote this book uh, called The Scheme, where he talks about dark money and how it's used to to shape the current U.S. Supreme Court. You know, we've all heard about, you know, Leonard Leo, the Judicial Crisis Network, basically ways to sway people for their preferred uh, Supreme Court candidate and against ones that they don't like, like Merrick Garland. Anyway, so Sheldon Whitehouse writes this little anecdote in his book where he's speaking to his Republican colleague, um, and they're both decrying the scourge of dark money, how it's anti-democratic, and Senator Whitehouse says, great, so you're going to partner with me on legislation to basically get rid of dark money in politics. And this was a few years ago. And the Republican colleague says, heck no, I'm not going to do that. We have an advantage right now. So why would we work with you to get rid of dark money when it's benefiting us to such a degree? And I think that that really speaks to to the power of money in politics, that there are people in Congress that are not interested in basically getting rid of it because it does benefit them. It helps their candidates get elected. It helps them raise a lot of money from very rich people who don't want their name in the news, who don't want to be on open secrets, you know, list of the top mega donors. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there, but. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to get into, you mentioned earlier, and I know this going to have to kind of maybe give some opinions on this so i i hear i hear the term dark money as well a lot and it has sort of become this mm-hmm. sexy buzzword and uh i i think you know it's juicy and sensational people hear dark money you know it's like yo is that like spy stuff you know it just has <laughs> this aura to it right but yeah. you know ever since that jane mayer book uh came out a few years ago about Dark Money and the uh, Koch brothers and Richard Mellon Scaife. I- I'm curious, do you ever think that in a way maybe the conversation about dark money is too narrow um, in the sense of, I mean, I think now when people hear dark money, uh, you know, they'll they'll think of that Jane Meyer book. They'll think of the Koch brothers or Richard Mellon Scaife. Um, but it sounds like it goes a lot deeper than just what people may know on the surface or or the names people may associate with it, like the Koch brothers or the Scaifes and whatnot. Yeah, no, I completely, I completely hear what you're saying. Dark money is a really important aspect of campaign finance that's worth looking into, that's worth shedding light on, but it is, it is an ever growing and very important part of an even larger picture. So basically dark money is seen as a, a symptom of this increased money in politics into the deregulation that makes it possible for unknown donors to to pour money into into elections. And you know, we at Open Secrets, we don't take positions, but we do advocate for transparency. And that is that is something that are, is our goal with being at Open Secrets. So basically dark money it's important it's it's great that some campaign finance aspect has captured the attention of the public in in this way but i do think that there are so many different nooks and crannies of money and politics that are absolutely deserving of the same attention like i mentioned pop up super packs earlier they're the the groups that pop up and spend a bunch of money and you have no idea who they are there's nowhere for you to find out even if it is not a dark money group funding it until after the election. There's also, uh, you know, federal lobbying, which is, you know, some groups just will throw every resource, like when big tech killed two two bills that were meant to basically break up their monopolies at the 11th hour at the end of the last Congress. Dark, so basically, yes, dark money, 
It's very sexy. It's at the forefront of Americans' minds. And as somebody who could talk about campaign finance for hours, I'm glad that it's a topic that people are, are really interested in. And it's very important. But it's also part of this much larger picture of the influence of money in politics in general. And also, like I said, I feel like uh, when you talk about the dark money stuff, and maybe this is true with campaign finance more generally, I feel like people will focus on like one or two names, right? Like I said, they'll they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's the Koch brothers thing. That's what the Kochs do. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's more than just uh, like you, you can't just pin it on like one group or, or one person. You know, I think people may associate the term dark money with a few different names, but it, yeah. it sounds like there's a lot more players involved in seeding dark money out there. Oh, yeah. There are so many more players involved than just the Koch brothers. I think that, you know, Jane Mayer really brought them to the forefront. She put a face to this dark money issue and really showed how this specific family and their influence web was basically using dark money to influence money in politics. But they're certainly not the only that the Cokes and their Americans for Prosperity certainly aren't the only spenders. And if reporting is to be believed, I think that, you know, as one of the Koch brothers recently passed in the past few years, and they're basically their influence in elections is is waning because they're spending less, a little less money, or they said they were going to in this election. But I think the really, the really overlooked aspect are the dark money groups that are basically sister organizations with the party controlled super PACs. So I mentioned One Nation earlier. One Nation is probably the biggest dark money spender. And basically they are aligned with, um, with, Republican Senate leadership. They share an office. They share some staff when you're able to get a hand, for, hand on these Form 990s. So basically, they're they're working hand in, in glove. Um, and so they will transfer money to the super PAC that's controlled by Mitch McConnell, but also spend on their own. As long as dark money groups aren't saying the magic words of elect this person or defeat that person, they can basically get away with anything. Anna said she once saw a bus with basically uh, this guy, uh, I don't remember the candidate, depicted as the devil on the bus side. Um, And dark money groups don't have to disclose to to the FEC, basically, that they have put up this ad uh, because it doesn't invoke the magic words and it's not within the 30 day window, I believe it is, that they would have to disclose to the Federal Election Commission. So you basically see at that that mark, One Nation and then American Action Network is the, the House Republican version. Transfer that money to their respective super PACs. You still you just see that it's from One Nation and you see that it's from American Action Network. But again, uh, this isn't just something that's specifically related to Republicans. The House uh, or this the Democratic Senate has majority Ford. The Democratic House has House majority Ford. And they've spent, you know, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars during the 2022 midterm election. You don't know where those donors are coming from. Um, but it's it's definitely something to keep an eye on. I am really hoping that we can can dig into and like maybe unmask some of these connections as the election drags on. Uh, it's already started. I can't believe it's 2023. Um yeah, it's just it's it's a it takes a lot of work. That's why Jane Mayer is so celebrated is because it she really did do some incredible reporting, unmasking the Cokes and drawing out their influence network. I think more reporting needs to be done on basically who's controlling the new dark money groups, who are the new donors. Um, and I think it's evolved. I think it's evolved since then as well. So just a few more brief questions here. Uh, when it comes to this broader topic of money and politics, I, I think we see a lot of stories in the recent news cycle uh, in the past year that are uh, sort of bringing people's attention to these issues. So not just what you're mm-hmm. covering with Ron DeSantis, but also, say, um, the whole uh, cryptocurrency empire uh, FTX, where you had um, oh. Sam Bankman fried uh, or freed um you know, basically saying, you know, I was donating to Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, I think people are starting to focus on these issues of 
you know, how is money influencing politics more? What's your general take on, you know, uh, the discussion around money and its influence on politics right now? Uh, do you think there's more focus on it um, or, or is there too little right now? I definitely think that there is uh, more awareness than ever on the influence of money in politics, ushered in in part by Sam Bankman-Fried. I am really proud. Actually, I did a lot of reporting on Sam Bankman-Fried, the ways that he was spending money in 2022 primaries, Democratic primaries, publicly, and then on his subsequent downfall and implosion the crypto industry in general is such a fascinating case study like we could have a whole other show about the influence of the cryptocurrency industry because as a whole it has just absolutely their lobbying expenditures have just skyrocketed over the past two years in part because as john oliver said at the end of his recent his recent special lobbying is basically lobbying for for legitimacy. You're lobbying for regulations to keep your industry in place. Crypto is such a new industry. And to a large part, they've succeeded. If you listen to a lot of these hearings, you'll hear lawmakers that typically don't know a lot about crypto espousing about stable coins and the need to, to compete with Europe on, on this. So there are also some critics like Tom Emmer, who is very outspoken against it. But Sam Bankman-Fried put a face to that too, because he was also probably at the forefront of lobbying these lawmakers. He was personally going into their offices at FTX. They were basically advocating uh, with members of the Senate Agriculture Committee, which were was responsible for passing this bill that hasn't been fully passed yet, that basically we get, give oversight authority to this specific agency. Um, Sam Bankman-Fried, I think, was sort of the public face of this, and his implosion brought a lot of attention to it. But I think that the nuance there um, about the broader ways that industries use money maybe has been lost in the sensational collapse of FTX, his subsequent arrest. Uh, people that don't read the indictment may be focused on the headlines about his charges of wire fraud, but there's also charges of campaign finance violations in there. Um, he basically is accused of funneling money in the names of his four other co-executives to Republican groups or to also other Democratic groups. And if you read the indictment, it's pretty wild. Uh, there's one uh, accusation that Nishad Singh, who's a former director of engineering, uh, that he allowed Bankman Freed to use his name to make a donation to a super PAC. And the consultant said to Singh, yeah, we're going to use your name. We're going to have to do a bunch of woke shit in exchange for like favors down the road. That's what the indictment says. Um, so what it says about the greater influence, I think that there's greater scrutiny on money and politics than ever before. I think Sam Bankman-Fried tried to use the system to his advantage. It exploded in a very spectacular way. But in a lot of ways, you know, if XTX, FTX hadn't imploded, part of me wonders if we would be having this conversation or if people would be considering it in such uh, clear-headed way right now. Well, I was also going to say, I think you make an important point there. We really shouldn't take our uh, eye off the ball and miss the forest mm -hmm. for the trees. So I think it's important to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried. But as you point out, you know, when we hyper-focus on the sort of sensational story of the implosion of FTX at the expense of that broader picture, because it's it's one piece of a puzzle, really. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, you know, to bring this back around to our, our initial conversation about Ron DeSantis, the amount of money in politics since 2010 has exploded. Open Secrets tracked $16.4 million was the cost of 2022 elections at the state and federal level. That's an insane amount of money. That's so much money. And it's so much more expensive than it was in 2010. So the forest itself has just absolutely exploded. And we need good reporting now more than ever to, one, track the specifics of where that money is going, but two, basically follow any 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 maneuvers that could further 
open the door for more money to flow in. Um, like what we are seeing with both Ron DeSantis um, and the complaint against him, as well as Trump's maneuver to transfer $60 million to a pro-Trump super PAC. You may have mentioned this earlier, and I, I'm just neglecting it, but why was there that explosion since 2010? Yeah, that's when the Supreme Court in Citizens United said, hey, money in politics, money is a form of speech. Corporations should be treated as people and they should be able to uh, raise and spend unlimited amounts of money as long as they're not coordinating with a candidate. That's why when you hear the term independent expenditure, um, that's typically what that means. So over $2 billion of that $16 billion that we mentioned went into these super PACs. And a lot of it is coming from just a few people, um, just these so that's, how the Pandora's, so, that's how the Pandora's yes. box got opened. That's how the Pandora's box got opened. That's how you, when you see the names of a lot of these mega donors, that's how that's how people become these like political mega donor stars is because of this 2010 decision that paved the way for a lot of them to make these massive contributions, as well as dark money groups uh, to make a lot of the expenditures that they're making as well. So before closing out here, the last time I had you on my show, um, I think I think we had um, a former colleague of yours from um, the Quincy Institute Nick on. I think it was Cleveland Nick Stout. Cleveland Stout. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, foreign lobby influencing, which is a topic I cover on this show a lot. Um, but you've also, you know, written about defense contractors and lobbyists for defense contractors, uh, NSO group, things of that mm -hmm. nature. Uh, what's the bigger picture when it comes to tying the DeSantis story into these other areas that you're covering, like the defense contractors, like the foreign influence lobbying, like the NSO group? Um, and maybe you can offer some updates on those uh, related issues. Yeah, I couldn't explicitly tie, you know, DeSantis to the defense industry, although I'm sure we will see a lot of defense sector contributions to him considering his background in military service and his his uh, viral early campaign video where he's flying in the plane. Um, but basically, I mean, I would highly recommend if anybody here is interested in foreign lobbying, if you want to see what Russia has been up to in its lobbying since it invaded uh, Ukraine, if you want to see what China's lobbying on as Congress weighs some really punitive measures against it and potential war with the country. Um, Open Secrets has the Foreign Lobby Watch. So that's where we track all of the disclosures made to the Department of Justice's Foreign Agents Registration Act. China was the biggest spender on foreign lobbying in 2022. We'll see what that looks like this year. Um, in terms of some updates on some very specific cases NSO group has been has been actively lobbying since they were placed on the entity list in I believe it was November 2021 which basically precluded them from from making a lot of trades with the United States because they were acting contrary to US national security interests following the Pegasus project that revealed that they had sold their spyware to governments that were using it not to target criminals, but to target journalists, to target dissidents um, all around the world. Saudi Arabia, Mexico. Yeah, because th there were I, I remember there were journalists um, that people were saying, you know, may have been targeted with this Pegasus software if they were covering things like the drug cartels and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, there are also allegations that in a lot of countries, too, though, like Mexico, there's there's not a lot of overlap with the uh, or there's there is over a significant amount of overlap with the government and the cartels. But um, they've been really targeting recently the American Bar Association. Basically, they're they're saying this is incorrect. We would never, ever sell our spyware to to governments that would use it incorrectly i we the journalists brought this to our attention but we didn't didn't have time to respond so they've continued to be active um in push pleading their case i don't know if they've made much progress though uh, there's still a strong sentiment at least on capitol hill there's not like a lot of appetite to give nso group the okay but they're still making their case anyway and they're spending millions of dollars to try to get their message out um, in terms of other great foreign lobbying issues, uh, 
Russia hired this U.S. conspiracy theorist who pushed Pizzagate to basically make videos, and this will loop into defense, I promise, um, (laughs) to make videos to publish outside of the United States, which is curious as to why they were filing it under FARA, because it's only meant to influence U.S. policy, although you could argue, you know, the internet is global, um, to basically push propaganda, make videos on that are very anti-American, that are basically- Do you know who this was? Ben Swan. Oh, really? Okay. I'm familiar with that name. Yeah, yeah. Yes, he he runs like a media conglomerate sovereign. He used to work at a local like a local news outlet in Georgia where he was subsequently fired because he was reporting on air about Pizzagate, even after it was proven to not be true. Um, So Ben Swan getting paid like six million dollars over the course of the next year to to make these videos. Um, Anyway, so how that relates to defense is the defense sector throughout the invasion of the war in Ukraine has continued to continued to basically funnel money to members of Congress, particularly to the chairs of the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee, their top recipients and lobbyists uh, continue to to press their case with them as well. Um, there are so many areas that you could look into with defense lobbying, like on the F-35, that's really kept that program afloat despite the myriad of issues that it's facing. But also just on inflation was a really big thing. Uh, you'll probably remember that in late 2022, everybody's like, oh, you know, inflation is going up. So there's a bunch of supply chain issues. That was the government contract or the defense contractor's big message that really made its way up to now House Armed Services Chair Mike Rogers. He's a Republican from Alabama where there's a really big Lockheed Martin facility. Um, he was basically saying the same lines that like the National Defense Industrial Association was pushing of, hey, we are going to lose so much money due to inflation and supply chain crises, even though there was independent research from people like Heidi Peltier at the Brown Cost of War Project saying, hey, you know, defense products are very different than eggs or milk. They're not really subject to the same inflation indicators. So they're continuing to spend a bunch of money the war in Ukraine um, has been absolutely awful, but they've been really even invited into the room at Department of Defense meetings to talk about both the supply chain issues and how to best respond to that. Um, I don't know. Is there a specific number also that you you wanted to to look at? I would have to reference some of my reporting because I don't think I've done it in a in a in a bit. But basically, it was a lot during 2022. No, I'm I'm looking at some of the numbers actually for the. Um, I was going to ask you about the. Um foreign lobby watch numbers um if you have a minute or two to talk about that because uh you have it broken up into uh open secrets has it broken up into uh top 10 countries and top 10 foreign principles what do we mean by foreign principles how how do you explain that page to people i I guess i'm asking yeah totally i i think so 10 countries is just the overall country um it's not china specifically spent in 2022 62.8 million dollars it's that foreign principles in china spent that much money on on lobbying foreign principles is basically just a fancy word for that government agency or company that wants to influence u.s public policy or perception which triggers them to have to register under fara there's a lot of exceptions fara is a very imperfect system um there's a lot of attempts being made to reform it right now but that's basically what foreign uh top countries are it's the country umbrella foreign principles is a specific uh specific group so you'll see um actually one of these companies on here on the top 10 foreign principles is barzon holdings they're a really interesting case because they are a subsidiary of the qatari like ministry of defense and they're a us-based company that's registered in delaware that's based out of Johns Island, South Carolina, and they basically like make drones. Um, and so their spokesperson has said to me, oh, no, we just registered under FARA because, you know, we're technically a foreign cop- company operating here. But they have always have a bunch of meetings with uh, 
with they disclose meetings basically with people in secretary of state um with local south carolina lawmakers like lindsey graham um and a lot of that is sort of greasing the wheels for those arms exports to qatar um qatar is one of the top recipients of um, arms imports not just from the united states but also in the world in general um so a lot of what bars on holdings does is to basically facilitate that friendly face of hey we're in your community we're funding your local university drone making competition um and it's contributed to actually did really interesting reporting around the world cup and how sports diplomacy really helped open qatar up to be a national security partner to the united states other foreign agents not bars on holdings but other foreign agents for like the embassy of qatar or just like the qatari government in general you can look in their informational materials which we have on our website um so you would go to search country you'd look at up qatar um and then you can go to the documents tab and you can see there's so many different types informational materials is where you'll see things like the emails that the lobbyists will send to lawmakers or to journalists um as well as how much money they've spent through specific periods of time i think qatar saudi arabia are really interesting case studies in this because they they do really fall under that lobbying on both you know national security partner and um cultural ambassadors um they really use those weapons and and art as the, their main forms of lobbying. And it's really very fascinating to follow. I was going to say too, that's not, I mean, those are the top 10, I'm sure other countries oh, yeah. like, a, you know, I, I was surprised not to see Turkey on it because I always hear Turkey's involved in a lot of lobbying efforts. Um, but it, it sounds yeah. like, go on. Oh no, I was saying, yeah, Turkey, I see Turkey filings all the time. Uh, and like you said, that's just, the ones that are on the front page of our website are just the, the iceberg. Top 10. It's the top ten. It right, is right. very much the tip of the iceberg. Um, a lot of a lot of money is spent every year on foreign lobbying. Um, like I think four point one billion dollars has been spent since twenty sixteen on foreign lobbying. So very much those top ten are just the tip of the iceberg. So what are the ones that surprise people when they uh you know look at your work or, or look at the foreign lobbying work because. I'm seeing some on here that I'm like Japan, Bahamas. I don't think we hear as much about those. Yeah. I mean, you you don't hear a lot about those. And a lot of, I think, especially like Japan, Korea, their foreign lobbying is very focused on trade. And I also think one of the the areas that people may be surprised to learn about and they might not, that might not attract as much attention, um, but does contribute to these numbers is lobbying on tourism so for example the top lobbying spender since from 2016 to 2022 is the government of the marshall islands and they've spent like 212 million dollars basically promoting tourism and they're not the only countries that 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 do that as well um tourism is also something that is lobbied heavily under farah which is very interesting last thing but i, was I would also encourage Oh, sorry. I would just say one of the also surprising things as somebody who covers both foreign lobbying and lobbying is there's some really big differences in the way foreign lobbying is reported that gives you both more information in a more frustrating way. LDA lobbying, domestic lobbying is you report it quarterly. It basically you mention some of the bills that you've been working on and the and the lobbyists that lobbied on those bills. It can be as little or as much information as you want. But under FARA, uh, basically, foreign agents are required. And foreign agents is like the lobbying firm or the LLC or the individual that's hired by the foreign principal um, to lobby on their behalf. So the foreign agents are required every six months to submit this thing called a supplemental statement. And that is a document that looks very hard to read from the beginning. But I would just tell people, if you're interested in looking into foreign lobbying, Look at the supplemental statements. If you go to 14A, it tells you how much that foreign agent was paid by the foreign principal over the past six months span. And then if you scroll down, there's a section on contacts. And sometimes this can be very frustrating because it's not in a uniform way, but it is an absolute goldmine. It's where you go and they're required to basically list their contacts with lawmakers, journalists, think tanks, everyone that they do. So they say, hey, I had... A conversation 
with the House Armed Services Committee chairs legislative aid on this date, and we talked about X. So, for example, Qatar during the World Cup, there were two disclosures where foreign agents had talked to two members of the, I think it was the House Armed Services Committee that had flown over to Qatar to watch the World Cup um, and basically were lobbied while they were there. Um, And even one was talking about legislation. Surprise, those lawmakers did not get back to me when I asked them what they were talking about. Um, But there's the, the detail is really something that we get for foreign lobbying that we don't get for domestic lobbying. And I, I do wish that we we did get some of those specific contacts for domestic lobbying, but that's just my journalist wish list. The last thing I was going to ask about, because um, it's come up with some other guests that cover foreign influence lobbying. Um, you know, Ben Freeman has talked about it with me, but uh, how much of a player is Israel in, you know, foreign lobbying? Because I, I see it's in the top 10 um, I know I, I know some people that like hyper focus on that. Sometimes I think people hyper focus on it to uh, the detriment of looking at the bigger picture. But but how does Israel sort of play into the foreign lobbying and foreign influence? Yeah, I mean, like you said, they are in the the top ten of spending on foreign influence since 2016. Uh, since 2016, they've spent like $162.3 million. And that's in addition to their diplomatic efforts. So, you know, government to government, diplomatic efforts aren't something that's going to be disclosed under FARA. But we've seen a lot of policy decisions being made, particularly around the defense space, that go to benefit Israel, even though Israel has been accused by organizations such as Amnesty International for misusing um, maybe some of the weapons that are are given um, to basically call do what Amnesty International calls a genocide against the Palestinian people. Um, I would have to look a little bit more specifically to see what they have been lobbying on, but it's actually uh, it's it's it just basically goes to show that Israel is very interested, even though they do have a very good diplomatic relationship with um, with the United States government in continuing to also lobby directly lawmakers to influence decisions of the American public as well. And the NSO group is included in that um, as well. So in closing, uh, what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation and uh, how can they keep up with your work? Any uh, words of wisdom on covering these topics and uh, what people can do if they're more interested in these topics or they're uh, concerned about these issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you so much to everybody who's made it to the end of this conversation. You t- tuned in for a chat about DeSantis and his super PAC, and we've made it all the way to foreign lobbying. And I hope you found it interesting and somewhat approachable. If you want to learn more about campaign finance, about lobbying, I really encourage everyone to go to opensecrets.org. Um, there you'll find basically it's, it's a playground for how to investigate money in politics. We have brief explainers on what things like dark money are. Or you could just dive right in and go to our foreign lobbying watch, look at some of the, the foreign, foreign principles and countries that JG and I have been discussing, look up your representative and senator and see who some of their top contributors are. Basically, you can keep up with my work on opensecrets.org slash news or on Twitter at TaylorJorno underscore. And thank you again, Taylor Giorno, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Taylor Giorno, and you'll check out her work and the work of others at Open Secrets. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. If you find this show enlightening or informative, educational, I really need your help to keep this show going. I've been doing this for around four years now, and I could really use your support. Even a dollar helps. So patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Parallax Views with Parallax Views.
the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.